You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a four-part series of messages Tony Evans presented at MBI Spiritual Emphasis Week 1993, and on Friday, a message he delivered at Founders Week 2013. Tony Evans is a Bible teacher on The Alternative radio program, an author and pastor of Oak Cliff Christian Fellowship in Dallas, Texas. Now, here is Tony Evans on Today in the Word radio. Again, let me reiterate how uh, delighted I've been to be here at the Moody Bible Institute. It is a wonderful place with wonderful students and staff, a president who has uh, demonstrated not only in his excellent leadership but in his personal concern the great balance between technical excellence and spiritual maturity, and a man who has become one of my closest friends in the ministry. I'm delighted to be here. I don't go very many places for a week, but this has been an honor to spend this week with you and feel like my own life has been enriched by being here. With one exception, I will be taking back with me a Chicago cold. Uh, That's due to the change in weather and to the moody workload. Uh, But... uh, That shows that you have really been listening to me for you clap on something like that. But uh, we're delighted to be here and trust that God will use our final time together as we continue to reiterate that while spiritual maturity is guaranteed, it is not automatic. Shall we pray? And now, Father, as we close this time together, allow it to be a time when we literally celebrate the privilege we have to grow in you, starting from this rostrum. Strengthen my walk with you, and I'll walk with you as well. In Jesus' name, amen. I recall during my junior high school days that there was a particularly difficult class that we were all taken, many of you here at the Moody Bible Institute running into those classes, the kind of class where everybody fails. The kind of class where the teacher has the philosophy, nobody can make an A here. The kind of class where it's just tough going and everybody's going to go down the tubes and you're lucky if you even pass the test. You don't even think about A's. I remember on one occasion I was in a class like that and sure enough, I made a 70, somebody else made a 72 and as we surveyed the class it had become apparent that the whole class was barely making it by the skin of our teeth. Actually, upon discovering that we all felt pretty good because that meant that the teacher would have to grade on the curve. Given the fact that everybody was doing bad, there would have to be some adjustment to reflect the average of the class, which would generally mean there would be a a collective bumping up of the grade. But in this one particular class was Mr. Nerd. Some jerk who knew it all. You have a few of them in your classes, I see. 
this guy messes up the curve. He breaks out and makes a hundred on the test. Therefore, impeding our ability to bump up our failure. He creates in the class a new standard by which the teacher is now measuring the test. The great danger in our spiritual lives is that we measure it by the rest of the classmates. We look at the people around us and see they're living about a 72 percentile spiritual life. We're at about a 73. We're really doing okay. But what we must remember when it comes to living the spiritual life is that Jesus has set the stand. And that it really doesn't matter what everybody else does, he messes up the curve. Because he brings a whole new standard. That's what bothered the Pharisees. Because everybody was okay till Jesus came. And he broke the curve. Jesus, as he was on his way to the cross, gave a final sermon to his disciples about the new standard that he had set and the process for reaching that new standard. That they weren't going to get there overnight, but that standard had to be the goal. It's found in what is viewed by biblical scholars as one of the greatest literary passages, not only in all the Bible, but in all of the liter- in all of literature. The saga of the vine and the branches in John 15. Jesus says, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. In fact, he says, I am the true vine or the real thing. I am the standard. He does what he does best and that is place his point in an illustrative context of vineyards. On his way to Jerusalem, he had to pass through the Valley of Kidron. Now the Valley of Kidron is known for its multiplicity of grape vineyards, where they would prepare the grapes to become the fermented grape juice that would lead to the daily wine that the people would drink. Jesus, reflecting on the valley with all the vineyards, says just what I need to orient my disciples into their relationship with me. His concern in this passage is related to fruitfulness or productivity in the Christian life. He demonstrates that in a number of ways. In verse 2, he talks about no fruit, fruit, and more fruit. In verse 5, he moves to much fruit. In verse 8, he reiterates much fruit. And then in verse 16, he says remaining fruit. Fruitfulness is his concern or getting to the point where we become productive followers of Christ. The greatness of your spiritual life will not be measured by the grades on the test that you take here at school. 
It will be measured by how productive you are for the kingdom of God, not primarily in terms of numbers, but certainly primarily in terms of quality of impact that you have for the kingdom of God. He outlines here a step-by-step, A, B, C, one, two, three, process for becoming a fruitful Christian or a mature believer exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit in the daily exercise of life. Now, there are two things you need to know about being fruitful or reaching that point of productivity. Number one, fruit always reflects the character of the tree of which it is a part. Apple trees produce apples, orange groves produce oranges, pear trees produce pears. That is, the fruit will reflect the nature of the tree. The second thing you ought to know about fruit is that they are never produced for the benefit of the tree. They're always produced for the benefit of someone else around the tree. So in order to be a productive Christian, it means you must look like the vine of which you are a part. The character of Christ must be being exhibited in your life. And it means you are so bright and shiny in in the way you do it, other people want to take a bite out of your life. You are mm mm-mm good. You are a tasty Christian who other people, other Christians, and even some non-Christians want to take a bite out of it. Because like red, juicy apples, you reflect so invitingly the character of the vine. He first introduces the group to whom he's speaking by saying, every branch in me, that is, every person related to me, he's referring to Christians. Whenever John uses in me, he is always referring to Christians. There are some difficult problems in this passage, which has caused some expositors to determine that this is non-Christians. However, biblical theology will not allow that kind of consistent exegesis. Every branch in relationship with me, every Christian, who does not bear fruit. He introduces us to this first Christian who is a non-fruit-bearing Christian. They're not producing at all. They're saved because they're in me. But they're stunted. They're not productive. He says that what he does is takes them away. Now at first sight that may look somewhat difficult because why would he take them away? Well we're helped by the Greek term here which literally means to lift up. When you understand how these orchards were formulated, this makes sense because every now and then there was a branch that would lean over and begin touching the ground and therefore not be able to get the sunlight or absorb properly from the soil the rain because it was dragging in the dirt and the dust. And so in order to make it productive again, the the gardener would take it away, that is, take it away from the ground, lift it up, put a stick in the ground, and you've seen this, tie the branch to the stick in order to lift it up so that it could now receive the light of the sun and not be impeded in the flow of the sap as it sought to integrate the fruit. 
He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the very first thing God does to try to make you a productive Christian is encourage you, lift you up, take you away from the circumstances that have you dragging around. That is when God intervenes in life's circumstances to supernaturally let you know he cares. This is particularly true for new Christians. And this is why new Christians seem to have so many prayers answered initially after being saved. God wants to encourage them to let them know, I am indeed your father. I care. It is when you're down and out and God just comes through and supernaturally does something. That check comes in the mail at the nick of time. That that grade that you didn't think that you could pass, you pass. He supernaturally comes in and he just encourages you. He lifts you up. It's when you go to church on a Sunday morning and you didn't go because you wanted to go, you went because it was Sunday. But somehow the choir sang your song. And the preacher preached like you were the only one in the building and he preached your sermon from your life scripture. That's what God was doing to lift you up. Because life had become a drag for you. Your fruitfulness was dragging. And so your ability to bear fruit was nil. So he encouraged you. He brought a person, a situation into your life to let you know he's still there. Then when you move from no fruit, you move to some fruit. Well, verse 2 says, every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes it. Now, God is not satisfied with no fruit, neither is he satisfied with some fruit, so he constructs a scenario to move you to more fruit. And the real way he does that is by pruning, verse 2 says. Pruning is the process of cutting back on the branch in order to equip the branch to produce larger fruit. And the reason that the gardener has to do that is because sucker shoots grow out on the the branch. Now, sucker shoots are these mini twigs that grow out on the branch that siphon off the sap. They are these little branches that bear out little stubs, but they are dangerous because they are sap suckers. They suck the life of the sap as it's going to the fruit and become their own little outgrowths independent of any productivity. And so the gardener cuts them back. He prunes them or clips them in order that the sap may flow unrestricted to the fruit to produce larger fruit. The size of fruit on fruit trees is largely related to the free flow of sap through the veins of the stem, through the branches. Whenever there are things that siphon it off, the natural result is that the fruit is smaller. Many of us who have been saved longer than other believers we know, but those other believers we know have become more fruitful, more productive, more spiritual, even though they were saved less, is due to the fact that the younger believer 
add less restrictions in the flow of the spiritual sap to the fruit of their lives. You could be saved for 10 years and be less spiritual than a person saved for one year because you have constructed so many sucker shoots, things that siphon off the flow of the glory, the grace, the will, and the word, and the spirit of God, that you may have small fruit, whereas a younger Christian may have large fruit because they removed the sucker shoots or allowed God to remove them. Now, I believe the Bible teaches that from the point of salvation to the point of spiritual maturity is a five-year process. You say, where did I get five years from? I believe that any Christian can become a mature believer in five years. Now, I get that because Paul wrote the Corinthians in 50 A.D. He, I'm, excuse me, he went to Corinth in 50 A.D. He wrote them in 55 A.D., five years later. And when he wrote them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said to them that um, when I was there, I fed you with milk because you were babes, brand new Christians. He says, but by this time, five years later, you ought to be mature. You're still walking as mere men. He says, I would have expected over five years you would have matured. Thus, I deduce that in Paul's opinion, since he's writing a whole church, not just as an individual, that it is possible for a Christian to mature in a five-year period of time to a basic level of spiritual stability. Every Christian ought to be on a five-year plan to maturity. To say, within five years, I'm going to so allow God to remove the sucker shoots from my life that I'm going to stop letting these shoots siphon off the sap designed to make the apples of my life huge. How does God prune us? Well, pruning is a very painful process. God prunes us through trials. He allows negative circumstances to come into our lives in order to force us, number one, to know whether we're as spiritual as we thought we were, to know the areas that need to be worked on and to give us the opportunity and privilege to work on them. It's trials. Every time you face a trial, pruning, you face an opportunity for the next level of spiritual development. Like taking a final exam, it's a test. You may not want it, but it's necessary to go to the next year. And when you go to the next year, all you do is go to a new exam. God set circumstances in our lives. Suppose, suppose Michael Jordan went over to his coach during his playing days and said, Coach, do me a favor. Would you go over to that other coach and tell him to tell his teammates to please leave me alone when I'm on the court? Every time I dribble the ball, they keep trying to take it away from me. Tell them, don't do that. Every time I go up the chute, they put their hands in front of my face, blocking my sight. How do they expect me to hit the goal when they're doing that? Every time I try to pass, they try to steal the ball. Please tell them to leave me alone so that I can score without being interrupted. The coach would say, Mike, we don't pay you a hundred million dollars a year. 
shouldn't leave you alone. We pay you for you to demonstrate with them having bothered you that you are able to dribble the ball down the court, underneath your legs, around your back, over your shoulders to outmaneuver them when you get to the goal and you go up and they put their hands in front of your face to go up, over, around, through and dunk it down their throats. That's why we pay you. We pay you and people come to see you because what they want to see is when faced with opposition, what you can do. God allows the opposition to oppose us, trials, so that we can dribble the truth that we have been learning in class under our spiritual legs, around our spiritual back, over our spiritual shoulders, go up and duck it for the kingdom of God. He does this so we can strut our spiritual stuff. So that we can demonstrate that what we learn in our head works in our feet. That's why he does it. That's why God allows for trials. For us to demonstrate his purposes. And so God creates trials and he says, in fact, James says, let patience have its perfect work. Let God finish the trial. I remember I took my son to the doctor one day and uh, he had to get a needle and the doctor was getting the syringe ready for the needle and, uh, and while he was doing that, he was, um, my son looked up and was terrified. He was small, five years old. And he jumped off the table into my arms. I said, no, we're going to have to go back on the table. And then he hit me with a heavy one. He said, Daddy, you're not going to let the doctor hurt me, are you? Well, I was caught between a rock and a hard place. Because the answer was, I didn't want the doctor to hurt him, but I had to help the doctor hurt him because he went off on me. He was on that table. The doctor came over. He did his Superman thing. He leaped up off of that table and I had to grab him and I had to let patience have its perfect work. I had to, as his daddy, hold him down. My son looked up at me as if to say, how can you love me and hold me down when this man is going to hurt me and you know it? Because I knew something my kid didn't. If the doctor didn't hurt him, he wouldn't get better, but since he didn't understand it, I had to hold him down. Sometimes in order to make us fruitful, God has to hold us down while circumstances prick us with the needles of life. But only that our fruit may grow bigger. Why? That we may bear, he says, more fruit. He says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. That is, the word of God is God's spiritual, excuse the expression, laxative. Designed to cleanse and remove the impurities out of our spiritual lives. It is God's cleansing agent to remove the excrements of our lives that do not belong. And the way it works, verse 4, he says, is abide in me. And I in you, the branch, cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, and neither can you unless you abide in me. You start off by being in me, a Christian. Then you move from no fruit to some fruit by means of encouragement. 
Then you move from some fruit to more fruit by means of trials. But the way you move from more fruit to much fruit is by means of abiding. The Greek word for abiding is the word minnow. And it simply means to stay or remain. In contemporary nomenclature, we would say, hang in there. When God is taking you through your paces, be they good, bad, or other, hang in there. Stay. Remain. The word of God which makes you clean, hang on to it. When you don't feel like it, hang in there. Abide. If you will stick it out, if you will hang in there, he says, by abiding, you will be able to move, verse 5, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. I don't know how many tea drinkers we have in the house, but tea is a very great illustration of abiding. You simply take the Lipton tea bag, a cup of hot water, and put it in there. That's all you have to do. And just wait and watch. And the water will get darker and darker and darker and darker simply because the tea bag was allowed to abide in the water. That's all you have to do. But now many of us don't believe in abiding. We believe in tea dipping. See people do that? They just dip. When you dip, it takes a lot longer to change the color of the water into the strength formulated from the tea bag. See, when you just dip it, when you're in and out of this thing, when you're committed one moment and non-committed the next moment, when you don't learn to abide, to remain, to just stay there, you elongate the maturity process. You cannot have strong spiritual tea, a strong spiritual life without remaining. Perpetual, consistent adherence to God's purpose, plan, will, and word, regardless of your circumstances. In fact, most people don't know it, but that's the way to get sin out of your life. Most people, most Christians try to get sin out of their lives the wrong way. Sort of like getting suds out of a milk bottle. Have you ever tried to do that? You have suds in a milk jug, and, and you want to get them out. What most people do is they put the milk jug under the, under the faucet, shake it, and pour the water out. All you've done is stir it up more suds. There's just more suds now. There's an easy way to get the suds out of the milk jug. You simply put the jug under the water and let the water run. And the water will reach down and lift up the suds until it gets to the top of the nozzle and up, out, and over it will go. Simply by abiding. Letting the jug abide under the faucet. Just letting it stay there. You get so full of the water that the axiom that two things cannot occupy the same space at the same time begins to work and you become full of water and thus no longer full of suds. The way to become full of Christ and no longer full of sin is by staying, remaining, and abiding, he says. He says, then you will discover that you will bear much fruit. Much fruit.
much fruit. He says something very interesting and very confusing in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch, dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, many exegetes are quite divided on this. Does he lose his salvation? Oh, no. Well, then they weren't saved in the first place. No, that won't work either. Because his statement is, if anyone does not abide in me, not if anyone is not a branch in me. His concern is abiding, and the word abiding has only been applied to the branches. And so if you weren't saved, you couldn't abide because you weren't even a branch. His statement is, if anyone doesn't abide in me, they're thrown into the fire and they are burned. The problem with contemporary evangelicalism is that whenever we see the fire, the only thing we think of is hell. And that is not the only way fire is used in the New Testament. Fire is also used of the judgment of Christians. 1 Corinthians 3 says that some will be saved just as so by fire. 1 Corinthians 10 talks about Christians who undergo the fiery judgment of God, or as chapter 12 would say, the discipline of God. If you would ask any of my kids who I have spanked, they would tell you, I like their fire. Fire here is not talking about hell, it's talking about discipline. First of all, God encourages you. Then he prunes you. Then he abides with you. But if you reject all that, you leave him no other choice but to throw you into the fire in order to get you to the fruit-bearing stage. If you reject all of his positive attempts, he must now use negative attempts to produce the one thing he wants that any farmer would want, and that is fruitfulness. God's goal is fruitfulness. You and I will be productive in our Christian lives. And he uses discipline to do that. The way you know that you're abiding, verse 7, is answered prayer, as we said the other day. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then whatever you ask, it shall be done unto you. Why? Because you're so filled with me and I'm so filled with you that the tea and the water actually become the same thing. And when that happens, then whatever you ask, I want you to have so you grant it. So the way that you know you're abiding and you've gotten to the much fruit category, there's a tangible way. Am I seeing more of my prayers answered? That's, that's the test of abiding. And so he says, By this is my Father glorified. In verse 8, That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's a very important verse. God is not glorified until you get to the much fruit category. Listen, listen to what verse 8 says. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. God is not glorified with no fruit, some fruit, or more fruit. That's a process to get you to much fruit. And you only glorify God when you are giving him much fruit. When they're big, ripe, juicy Commitment coming out of your life and benefit to others for the kingdom of God. That's the only time he's glorified. In fact, verse 8 says you're not even a disciple until you get to much fruit. And you know you're at much fruit because you're getting your prayers answered. 
So if he's not answering your prayers as a way of life, not that you get everything you want, that means you're not being conformed to his image, so you're not asking for the right things, which means you're not in much fruit category, which means you're not glorifying him, which means you're not a disciple yet. That's what that means. God, see, see, some of us have got little apples talking about, well, at least I have something. No, not. That won't work. He doesn't want some fruit. He doesn't even want more fruit. He wants much fruit. That everywhere you go, the mark of God is being left. And so he says in closing in verse 11, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. That's another benefit of much fruit, of more fruit, that leads to much fruit, joy. What's joy? Joy is inner stability regardless of external circumstances. It's calm on the inside no matter what's happening on the outside. That's the way you know you're there. He's answering your prayer and one of the main things he's giving you is calm. Did you know fish never get upset when it rains? It doesn't, it doesn't bother fish. You know why? Because fish understand that no matter how bad the weather is outside, it can only penetrate 25 feet of the water surface. So you know what fish do when it rains? Go down 26 feet. They don't, they're not bothered by circumstances. I remember when I took my son to that doctor, by the way, and uh, when I took him, I always hated going into these waiting rooms because you had to wait a long time. And, uh, you know, if he was sick, then he was miserable, I was miserable. And the waiting room had a bunch of other parents like me. So everybody was miserable. But you know what? My doctor came up with an ingenious idea. He built a playroom in the waiting room. Puzzles, coloring books, blocks. So that even though my kid and the other kids were sick, he created an environment of joy while we were waiting on our deliverance. Because even though my son's nose was running, his eyes were crying, and he didn't feel good, he'd still try to play with those blocks. That's joy. Joy is God building a playroom in your heart. Even though the external circumstances of a sniffling spiritual nose, runny eyes, and spiritual headaches encumber your life. Spiritual growth is guaranteed, but it is not automatic. God's goal for you and me is spiritual maturity. He will do everything he can to get you there. He'll encourage you. In addition to encouraging you, he'll try you. Then he'll abide with you. If none of that works, he'll discipline you. So that you can be the biggest and best manifestation of his character possible. And that's available for everyone in this room. In fact, it's guaranteed. It's just not automatic. Shall we pray? Father, may we accept your work in our lives that we might grow into the people you called us to be. For your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of four messages Tony Evans presented at MBI Spiritual Emphasis Week in 1993. Tony Evans is a Bible teacher on The Alternative radio program, an author and pastor of Oak Cliff Christian Fellowship in Dallas, Texas. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.